This is Fam Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air with JK Amazy for the first time. Welcome to the Fam Electric Ghost podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So this episode is going to be 925 of our podcast. We've been on the air since 2016, tracking that on Apple Podcast. And uh, uh, we also want to let people, we are featured, no, we are featured podcast on the Newsly platform. You see the little icon up there that says Newsly. So if you use coupon code GHOST, you get one month free premium subscription. And this episode, we're going to talk about how pornography destroys masculinity. So we can start um, with how, how you might want to address that topic. I have a bunch of other questions, but maybe you start with like, what is a pornography addiction? Maybe you can define that. Yeah. A pornography addiction is anytime an individual compulsively struggles with a uh, uh, an issue with pornography. Anytime that you find that um, you're unable to stop and it is interfering with what we call the major areas of reboot capital. So typically people use pornography for entertainment. They might use it to enhance their sex life. It becomes an addictive behavior when you use it to deal with unresolved issues. Anytime you feel stressed out, when you use it as the only way that you can um, perhaps uh, be aroused or get an erection, you use it as a replacement for intimacy. And it also becomes an addictive behavior when it interferes with your work, when it interferes with your relationships. And uh, when you start escalating your behavior and it puts you at risk, uh, this would be Perhaps when you start using or start viewing material that could be considered to be illegal, or when it becomes a gateway into uh, engaging in in behavior that could be illegal, like if it's illegal to visit with prostitutes in your area, mm-hmm. and you find that your porn behavior with pornography has escalated to the point that you watch pornography and then you act out with prostitutes and do uh, engage in risky behavior, uh, then it's a problem. Um, the key part of this is that it it really becomes a problem when you try to stop and you can't. And I think that's the important thing in today's world to, to specify, because a lot of people go like, man, porn addiction, is that, is that even a thing? Does that even, does that even exist? Um, It's like, yeah, it exists. Just most people don't know they have one because they haven't tried to stop. Well, I think it's like any addiction. Okay. We've talked to a lot of addiction counselors, you know, people, you know, you know, they go out on the weekend and they drink and they think they're not alcoholics, but they could be a weekend alcoholic no. and they don't even, if they, did they ever try to stop? And then they realize when they try to stop that they, they got the same scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as with any other addiction, it runs, it's, it, there's a spectrum and there are people who do it every day. There are people who do it multiple times a day. There are people who stay off it for a couple of weeks and then they binge like crazy. Um, but it all carries the same after effects, which is you realize there's an inability to stop, you're experiencing shame and guilt, um, and it's damaging your lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, so So, maybe um, how long does it take to heal your brain from something like this once you start to realize you have a problem? Uh, it, when you start to realize you have a problem? Yeah, I guess uh, the question is, how long does it take your brain? Is that your question? Yeah, I guess there's a question that you like to answer. This is, how long does it take your brain to heal from a pornography addiction? 
but what I was trying to get at. It really depends. That's actually a great question. It really depends. Um, it really depends on the individual and it depends on the extent of your behavior. Um, at Porn Reboot, we have different levels from level one all the way to level six. And just to keep it simple, level one would be that you typically view pornography to deal with stress. Um, you view it because you spend a lot of time on social media. And then eventually that release of dopamine leads to a need for more dopamine. <laughs> so uh, you end up watching pornography every time you're on social media. You go to the bikini girls or the fit girls or whatever else mm -hmm. there is. You end up with porn and then there's level six where the individuals who are watching material that's very disturbing that is illegal and they're also trying to act out on that behavior um depending on the yeah, level so, you're at, yeah. you're at it, it might take a while but typically we've seen that if a person is focusing on it it takes about a year and a half to two years to fully rewire your brain so your website uh www.elevatedrecovery.org that's how people can reach you to have the conversation if they haven't been able to find, you know, like you said, like our people saying, is this, this even a thing, you know, they might be not able to find uh, the right kind of help. And maybe that, you know, talking to you and connecting with you on that website could get them started. Right. What happens if they connect on the website? Absolutely. So um, we actually run an addiction recovery service. We have several um, psychotherapists, therapists, and coaches. Uh, I'm the head coach in the program. Uh, so individuals who come to elevatedrecovery.org, um, we have about 900 blog posts there. We also have our podcast, the Porn Reboot Podcast, has just over 500 uh, episodes. On YouTube, you can find me, JK Maisie, Porn Reboot or Elevated Recovery, and we've got about 900 videos on there. So we've been doing this uh, since 2012, 11 years helping men end their behavior. What I recommend is that people come to the website, elevatedrecovery.org, and educate themselves first, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of shame that comes with this behavior. And you might not be ready to just talk to some random guy on the internet about your, your behavior. Typically, mm -hmm. most people are not sure. They're like, you know what? I think everybody does this. It's so normalized. Do I have a problem? And it's kind of weird sometimes to, to think about the concept of paying for another man to help you control your jerking off. <laughs> so yeah. I think you've got to get comfortable yeah. with the idea of seeking help with this. Yeah, I, I mean it. Like I have the same issue. 11 years ago, sorry, excuse me, 15 years ago when I was dealing with this, I thought it was really weird to reach out to somebody else and say, I think I have a problem with porn because you think when you're dealing with it, that you're the only person in the world who has this problem. And you're like, I think everybody just does it and it's chill and they move on with their lives. Why am I the guy who's doing it all the time? What's wrong with me? So once you get over uh, the shame and guilt that comes with that, you'll be in a better place to have a conversation. Now, 15 years ago, when you recognized that you had an issue, was it hard for you to find a therapist? that knew how to deal with it? Did you just go to like a general purpose therapist and then find a more specialized one? Yeah, uh, 15 years ago was when I actually overcame my behavior. So it goes back even further than that. But let's say more than 15 years ago, there were very few people talking about it. 
and they were therapists and they still are therapists that will laugh you out of their office when you show up and say you have a pornography mm. addiction. Um, actually, there are quite a few um, um, uh, foundations here in the, in the, in the United States and organizations, therapeutic, professional therapeutic organizations that don't believe that pornography and sexual addiction are actually things. Uh, thankfully, last year, the World Health Organization recognized sexually compulsive behavior as an addictive behavior, which included high-speed internet pornography. Back then, there was nothing. Wow. There were therapists who were open to talking to me, but the issue was that everybody was sending me to a 12-step group. And there's nothing wrong with 12 mm -hmm. steps, but 12 steps was designed for substance abuse disorders, not really for behavioral yeah. uh, addictions. So what I had to do was I had to find different methodologies that would uh, that would help me end the behavior. And that's how I ended up doing this professionally. Now, in the field of uh, clinical psychology or therapy, is it, is it that the way te people are taught based on like the, the whole uh, canon of that, you know, those concepts, like you said, it, it, are there doctors you know with phds that actually argue that it's not you know that's the same as a as a chemical addiction or it's not the same or you know there's different schools of thought is that what you're going against when you go into to be a therapist in this area are there people who write white papers and books and, and argue against what you're doing Absolutely. There are people who, it, it is so varied. There are people who believe it doesn't exist. There are people who immediately assume that if you ever come out and speak up on something like this, you must have some sort of conservative background. And like, be, you must be really some secretive conservative Christian guy, which I'm not. I'm actually very, very liberal and open. In fact, when people listen to my podcast, they're like, dude, like you go everywhere. I was like, yeah, we'll talk about everything, all kinds of sexual behavior, all sorts of kinks, all sort of fetishes. And they are surprised mm -hmm. because your traditional therapist doesn't want to talk about those things. But yeah, there are people who don't believe it's an issue. There are those who believe it is only based on trauma. Like you must have had something traumatic happen to you. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that anybody can have a problem with pornography. We have men, right, who never had a serious issue with pornography till after 2006. And that was the advent of YouTube. That's when the porn sites became free. That's when they, they switched from, you know, back in the day, you could, you had to do like a trailer and a trial yeah, and yeah, watch yeah, it. Then they switched to yeah. free. And then, yeah, yeah. That was the like time in 2006 that be, a lot of guys started getting addicted. To IT. It must be an yeah. ex exponential. <laughs> I'm an IT guy, right? So like once you have free, there would be an exponential increase in anything that people can access without having to go through a paywall, you know, because if they don't have to go through a paywall, then people are just going to, exactly. uh, there's no, there's no limit and they must get even worse with the, the repetition and the amount of behavior, because like, you know, you were limited to how much money you have. So eventually you, you might hit the wall cause you can't afford it. But if there's no, no limit to what you can, can do, then you're going to, be very extreme. <laughs> exactly. And then when it's connected to a behavior that ends in orgasm, which is something that is probably one of the most pleasurable things a human being can experience, 
Oh, then the sky is the limit. Now you got unlimited leads, unlimited individuals who are going to be hooked on it. And that's great because now you have a customer base mm -hmm. that has come for the free stuff, but they stay year after year after year, which makes them susceptible to being studied. You can survey them very well. You can understand the genres they're into. Mm -hmm. You can understand their behavior. And of course, ultimately, you can market to them better. That's what the porn industry does. Yeah, eventually you'll go from being somebody that was using it for free to getting addicted like a gambler that gets teased by winning something in Las Vegas and then they get stuck because you know, like they won, but then they lose everything. <laughs> Cause that's kind of like the, 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 the model. <laughs> you, you, you win, you win, you win a little bit, then you lose a lot. <laughs> no, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So it, it seems exactly the house, the house always yeah, wins. It's design, you know, it's mathematical. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like, if you, but you're, you're, you're not, logical right so they're they're thinking, they're thinking logically and you're not because you're getting triggered by that pleasure center right and you want to you want to repeat that and it's the same you know I, this might be why maybe people feel like 12 steps gonna work because they think it's like like it's like the gambling addiction it's like this you know the, the, the alcoholic or the drug addict but it, it seems like maybe it's, it's hitting different areas of the brain or different areas of your, of your, of your whole mindset, which maybe you can go into more. That's depth. actually such a, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great observation with the 12 steps. Um, because it's a substance abuse addiction, the substance itself is external to you. And so you have to actually go out there and get it. So boundaries can easily be created. But when it comes to pornography addiction or sexually compulsive uh, disorder, the substance is here. It is the dopamine. It is the endogenous opiates mm -hmm. that you release. So when you have an orgasm, you're actually releasing opiates into your brain. That's why it feels so freaking great. So how do you use the system for dealing with an external substance like alcohol to deal with something that's in your own head? Yeah. How do you set a boundary with that? You get what I'm saying? That's harder. Also, <laughs> the process of addiction, the reason why we call well, I think that's probably harder because it's not external. Like the Yeah, no, it, it's because it's internal. And it's the interesting thing is that, you know, when guys are addicted to pornography, um, like with, with alcohol, a typical alcoholic isn't just sipping on the drink and enjoying it they are headed somewhere very, very specific. They know there's a state they want to reach. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, the state of intoxication lasts a long time. For somebody with pornography, the state of orgasm for a man lasts a short time. So what does he do? He needs to edge. He needs to keep switching from genre to genre and find creative ways of keeping himself from orgasming while enjoying the process. But the ultimate enjoyment is the orgasm. So what happens is in the process, he keeps watching more and more taboo material. So the things that are going to get him to orgasm become worse and worse and worse. Well, all those things he's watching, a lot of them mm -hmm. start making him feel shame. He doesn't feel the shame till he orgasms. And any guy who's watched pornography, every guy has been through the process where you just finish watching it and you're just sitting there with a mess all over you going like, what the heck did I just watch? <laughs> what, what did I just do? <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the interesting thing is 
when you start watching pornography that's not in tune with your values and you experience shame, shame imprints on you. So guilt, for example, is just like, ah, I did a bad thing. Shame is like, I am a bad person. And that, that imprints on you, but now you can't stop the behavior. So you keep watching the same type of pornography. Your shame keeps growing. And here's the craziest part of it. When you experience so much shame, it thrives in secrecy. You can't even ask for help. So unlike alcoholism, where you can see the effects of it or drug addiction, somebody who's struggling with a porn addiction also has shame. So you don't even know mm -hmm. that they're all around you walking everywhere. So yeah, 12 steps is not going to fix it the way it needs a, its own unique approach because you have to understand the mechanism of this compulsive. Well, it seems like it triggers other behaviors that could even be, you know, they could lead you into other things. So is it, is it kind of like a gateway into other behaviors that you're going to have to resolve with a therapist as well? Um, sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes it could be a gateway into viewing material that you could consider to be traumatic based on something that happened to you in the past. Um, some men just stay watching the same thing for years. It escalates slowly, but a lot of men, when they get to a certain point, they start trying to control it. So let's say this is the point of compulsion. A man kind of crosses it. Most men will keep pushing back. Like they'll start using willpower. Oh, I gotta cut, I gotta cut it down. But they'll keep playing this mm -hmm. game for years. Most men will rarely move forward. There's some who just go like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna keep going. Some of them just okay, cool. All right. <laughs> uh, they just go past it. And when they're doing it with drugs or alcohol or other substances. They move past it. And yes, it can move into other things. It can move into um, um, addiction to spending. So there are men who actually need to know that the person they're interacting with is real. So this leads to OnlyFans. So you're spending money on OnlyFans. You guys who spend money on video chat sites, it can escalate all the way to keeping sugar babies on the side, paying women for certain fetishes and fantasies that you mm -hmm. have. So that's the financial aspect of it. There are others who escalate into other behaviors, like um, having sex with transgender individuals when they identify as straight, um, and the list goes on. So yes, it's a gateway to many types of complex behaviors, which after you engage in the behavior, you might be traumatized. Yeah, it seems like you could, you could trigger into like a gambling addiction, like if you're going into OnlyFans and you're kind of spending money that you don't have, like Las Vegas. And then you could go into criminal behavior, like going to see prostitutes. You could go into like potentially abusive relationships or codependent relationships that are good for you. And then there's a whole nother level there. And once you get into a codependent relationship, then you can need a, a relationship counselor to figure out like what you're doing. But the core would be your, your porn addiction. And then somebody probably wants to find, you know, which some people argue, well, you said before, absolutely. It, that, oh, it's a childhood trauma that triggered it. Or it's like, because a lot of times you go to see therapists and they're always like, oh, it's the inner child that was wounded. And it's, uh, but you're saying in a situation that it, this particular type of addiction, it can be other things. It's not always that. Or maybe primarily, it's not even that. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of people think that um, 
it is it's always an inner child thing and sometimes it is and and just to be specific so guys know what's happening the only time what what do you call it your inner child your shadow self your sub personality schema whatever name that you have for it it all it's always the same thing for those individuals it is an identity within you that is holding the memory of something that happened to you so something happened to you it was traumatic you didn't have the coping strategies to deal with it and so you keep the memory of that thing and what you're doing with porn and masturbation is that for, for those who have it as a traumatic issue mm. porn and masturbation was the only coping skill you had it made you feel good and so you do that for some individuals they do need to confront and raise awareness of that inner child that subpersonality that part of them that doesn't have the coping strategy, develop coping strategies for it, and then they're good to go. But it's really just about the self-awareness part when it comes to that. It's I think sometimes therapists and psychotherapists try to make it very complex. They're like, oh, you know, you've got this wounded inner child that really needs to be taken care of. And they're like, it's the trauma. The truth is that for a lot of people, it's not the trauma. It is the insistence that the trauma shouldn't exist that's the problem, not the mm -hmm. trauma. We all know the trauma is there. It's just yeah. you keep telling yourself, oh, man, that shouldn't have happened to me. Why am I dealing with this behavior? Why is this such a big deal? That's the problem. Once you understand that, which is actually what we do when we work with clients who have a traumatic attachment to the out-of-control behavior, once they have that self-awareness, they're good to go because they can start becoming aware of it and releasing it. You don't need to spend years sitting with a therapist. Yeah, because sometimes it's like you have to have like, well, I know some therapy is like, it's, it's a never ending. And then you're wondering like, well, then you're kind of stuck on that train. And if you're at least if you have a process where like, okay, I can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then I can try to take steps to, to identify, you know, your situation. Cause if you find, you know, you talk about these people talk about narcissists and people who can't, you know, that don't understand they're narcissists and mm. or people who don't understand like why they're in codependent relationships and why they keep on, it doesn't matter. Like they can't, it's not going to, they're not going to solve the problem with the next soulmate because there's a problem inside and they never address that. They're looking for somebody else to, to save them or make them. And it's like, that doesn't work because if you don't, you're going to just keep on repeating the same thing. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. I think with with um, with therapy, and also when we talk about the inner child and different sub personalities, there is one of them that is attached to a behavior that's sexually compulsive in nature. But the truth is that for the rest of your life, if you keep looking, you will keep finding different parts of yourself that are hurt, different parts of yourself that have issues, and often people will go to work with a therapist for one issue. What the therapist keeps finding is they obviously they're really good. They'll keep finding all the other things wrong with you. It's a choice. If you wanted to, you could stay in therapy for the rest of your life finding issues. The thing I had the problem with was that people started feeling that because they were finding all these issues with themselves, that they were somehow broken or they were somehow not worthy or they were somehow mm -hmm. unlovable. But the truth is you are lovable. You are worthy despite this just for just existing. That's the first thing to understand. And then people stop chasing their dreams because they think they're broken. And the reality is you can feel like a bad person and you can feel unworthy. 
And it's not going to sabotage you. You can still do the work. You can still get into the relationships. You can still build a business. You can still live a fulfilling life, even if you feel bad and even if you feel unworthy. It was Dr. Albert Ellis that said, and this has been my quote for the week, that for the, for the year, excuse me, that anybody can recover from an addictive behavior, but nobody can recover from being human. Mm-hmm. We're human beings. We're going to fuck up. We're going to screw up. Yeah. And you can decide to spend your life trying to fix that or just accept you're human and just pick four or five things you're going to work on and enjoy your life, right? Yeah. <laughs> as a creator, like as a musician and a writer, a lot of times we dive yeah. in those things. Like we take those things that we know are wrong and we turn it into art. Every artist I've ever talked to has found a way to channel all the trauma and all yeah. the pain and even the happiness. They can take those emotions and turn them into art. And that's where I think we, we always talk about it as cathartic. As a, as a musician, we use our art as like art therapy, as a, a way to kind of heal ourselves. Where people who don't have that ability sometimes hit the wall because they don't have a way to process it. But I think when I've talked to writers and artists and poets, they just, that's part of our nature. The only problem I've seen with artists sometimes is we feel like, well, we have to stay broken because that's where we got our biggest hit. So that becomes a problem. Like, like, so if you have to be in a crucible moment all the time to create your best work, and there's an issue where like James Taylor was a famous guy, right? He wrote fire and rain, water, you know, and, yeah. and he had this period yeah. where he wrote all these songs and he was a heroin addict. He had all these yeah. issues. And then when he got married and got happy, he did an album and the reviewers panned it. They said it was terrible because it didn't channel all the pain because uh, like when he wrote all his hits, he was in a bad place. And he was able to channel that. But then when he was happy, they didn't like his work. So then you're like, okay, what are you supposed to do? And that's been like a problem sometimes for artists is like, do, do we have to be in that bad place to write the work that work? create i actually have a question about that i'm i i'm not a, a creative in my sense i would say that my my artistic ability the art that i have is in my healing ability when i'm with clients but for somebody who does it in the way you, you do this is it's a great conversation because i think of all the artists who uh, it seems as if they self-destruct at some point in life do you know of any examples of of artists music writing art painting drawing whatever it is they do who actually have made that shift from creating from a place of pain and brokenness into creating from a place of more peace and still maintained their level of success and uh, have the critics still go like, okay, that was an evolution. Are there examples yeah, of there, that? Yeah, I mean, there's like, some guys I'm that survived, survived from any. the 60s. You look at a guy like Pete Townsend from The Who. The, who, the whole definition of The Who was the who. that they realized there was something wrong. Right. It's like the whole band, the who was talking about multiple personality disorders, being on the outside, being they they were famous for being like the ultimate outsider. They were like punks before punks. And the whole idea of Tommy was talking about trauma from child abuse. And so a lot Quadrophenia was about a multiple personality situation. Now, Pete Townsend had this epiphany where he almost died from a heroin overdose back in the early 80s. And he found a way to, you know, he went to therapy. He, a lot of the guys from his time period, like the Hendrixes, the Janis Joplins, Jim Morrisons, they didn't make it. But what thing about Pete was Pete was always 
doing the self-assessment. The who was always kind of the psycho psychoanalyst of 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 like his own life in his work. Yeah. And because he always was in that spot, he's still here. You know, in his seventies, he survived. And so I, I think he's been able to go take his stuff and put it on Broadway and, mm. and still be out there. And I think it's because he actually came to terms with what it was. You know, and I think that, that's a, a success story from an artistic point of view. So cool. <laughs> now, that's a good one. I'm going to take a note of that. Does yeah, there's a like bunch of books out there. there. You can check them. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to take a note of that because I'm very In the fact that he's a survivor from that period. Just you know, he's a survivor from that period where most guys are in the 28 Club. You know, even members of his own band, like Entwistle died of a cocaine overdose and Moon died of a, of, a, of alcoholism. Um, and so, like, like it, it, you know, it, the his bandmates didn't make it, two of them. Um, and, you know, and his peers, like Harris yeah. and... Morrison, Joplin, you know, they didn't make it. But I think it was like, you know, in his, in his head, he was able to to understand it and uh, and confront it. And it's always been in his work, you know, almost all of his albums. He had an album called Psycho Derelict. <laughs> they totally went into the idea of a, a, a washed up a, um, star that was into pornography and stuff. It was like, so it was, it was it's, it's his, his self-assessment. That's of, of that type of mindset is is really dynamic in rock history. I, I think people ought to check it out. If you really look at Tommy and Quadrophenia so cool. and Psycho Daryl. I, I will. Yeah. I will check it yeah, out. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. But um Yeah, that's very interesting. But it seems like like for for porn affecting the sex life, and then once somebody realizes they've got this issue, they probably have significant issues with like intimacy with their partners. Is there a lack of intimacy with partners with people who have the, this extreme have a, have a, have an addiction to porn? Definitely, because the whole process of exposing yourself to watching other people having sex is is you're being a spectator in the process. When you're a spectator, uh, um, you don't have intimacy. It's not like you're at a live music show where the, the artist is interacting with you. You're just watching people on a screen in the privacy of your own home. You're hiding from other people. So when you keep watching people, um, that becomes the way that your brain processes sex. So when you actually start experiencing it and your biochemistry changes, suddenly it goes, wait a minute, like this doesn't, this is not three different ethnicities. This is not a, a perfectly airbrushed person. This person isn't making those sounds. Wait a minute, their smells and their... This is not the way I like it. I like watching that genre. And so there are a lot of women who you will hear today saying that, man, when I have sex with a man, it feels very performative. It feels like he's trying to put me in these different positions and, and it doesn't feel intimate. And so pornography completely lacks intimacy. And if you continue to expose yourself sexually to that, over time, you lose the ability to be intimate. That's the first part. The second part is on a more biochemical level, a lot of men struggle with what is called PIED, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, mm -hmm. which simply means that you viewed pornography so much that you've rewired your brain to only be able to be aroused when you have that visual stimuli. That visual stimuli cannot be replicated by your partner. 
And so there are a lot of people who say, oh, we watch pornography to enhance our sex life. The truth is they cannot have sex if there is not pornography while wow. playing. And so little things like the art of, like when you're masturbating, right? You're, you're using your hand. Your hand is not the same as a vagina, but you are masturbating and viewing pornography more than you're having sex. Your brain becomes conditioned to that. And so having sex with a woman is just, it's weird. You have to retrain yourself to have intimate sex. Wow, that's a big, that's a big, uh, <laughs> you know, issue for a lot of people probably don't even realize that they've uh, kind of kind of wrecked a, a, a intimate relationship with their partner from their addiction. You know, they until they actually you know ch you know look into what you're saying because when they confront it, you know, when you finally confront the truth, and it's like probably very devastating to realize that you've uh, you potentially you know have maybe ruined your relationship with with your partner. <laughs> and not that you can't save it, but once you recognize what you've done, you got to figure out Absolutely. how to how to get out of it. And and I, so there's a is there a process to come to bring intimacy back w with people who've been in in this situation? Absolutely. You know, the individuals who say that uh, you know, like the opposite of addiction is sobriety, but the truth is that the opposite of addiction is connection. Right. It's it's and that's the beauty of it. When you realize that the opposite of addiction is connection, it's being around the right people. It's learning how to stop being selfish and taking care of your own needs, learning how to prioritize other neurochemicals like serotonin instead of dopamine all the time. Um, the process becomes um, not easier, but it becomes a, a, a gentle process. You start seeing like, OK, I can do this. So yeah, there is a process to create intimacy, but it all begins with staying away from the thing that is destroying that is destroying intimacy. The brain rewires at its own pace, mm -hmm. and slowly as the brain begins to rewire, people start to connect again. Um, the first thing that I, I would say in the process is learning how to um, be in touch with your emotions and feelings again. When you view pornography, you're disconnecting from all the emotions that typically come with intimacy. So what I typically tell my clients to do is they start off with self-awareness exercises that help them realize emotions. So if a guy spent the whole night binging on pornography and smoking weed, he's gonna wake up either numb or shameful in the morning. He's not gonna wake up and go like, oh my God, I, that was a great bender last night. <laughs> yeah. So he does this for years. We start him off in the morning beginning with, hey, check your feelings, man, do a feelings exercise. And most of our clients are like, bro, when I sit down in the morning to identify feelings, I can't identify anything. I just feel numb or irritated or pissed off or shameful. And over time, we teach them to start coming in touch with their emotions um, and addressing them. Now, part the of that, step. you know, being an artist, you know, I, we journal we do diaries, you know, I come into my home studio and I put my multi-track on and I just kind of riff. I just kind of work out what lyrics huh. and the lyrics usually are representative of my feelings. So the question okay. is I, when people who don't who say they're numb, huh. do you try to get them to journal or voice memo or write things down to try to get in touch with that? Absolutely. I always recommend that they put pen to paper or that they 
big journal, do it by voice. But for the most part, it's pen to paper for a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. And one of the easiest ways I found for guys, which is like, I feel numb is to do two statements. The first one is, let's say I feel numb. Then you go back as far as you can in your memory. And the second line could be, I first remember feeling numb when, and that's just what you keep doing. You keep mm-hmm. trying to go back as far as you can. Eventually your subconscious mind goes like, fuck it. I first remember feeling numb when I was 12 years old and this happened. And sometimes they're like, I still can't feel anything. I just feel irritated about this exercise. I'm like, that's fine. Start with that. I feel irritated about this stupid ass exercise. (laughs) I first remember feeling irritated when I was six years old and my parents said that I should do this. And I was like, what's the point? I don't want to do this. And their subconscious over the days starts prompting that and going back. Oh, yeah, I first remember feeling and then slowly from the past and in a more innocent time, they start bringing up feelings and emotions. But yeah, journaling is a very powerful way um, to process emotions and get in touch with yourself. Another thing I found is like, you know, there's a level of empathy you kind of have to have. Like if you're saying you feel numb, you kind of be probably feeling about yourself. But what I find with some people was like, they don't have good listening skills, right? So. Like their partner talks and they're they're like in their phone or like thinking about the next day and thinking about what they got to do. They're not listening. People aren't listening to each other. So I think part of intimacy or companionship is like you have to listen to your partner. You have to process what they're saying, right? You have to start to get empathetic. And I guess how do you teach empathy if you never if you don't seem to behave that way? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, the with, with porn reboots, we really focus on awareness. I focus on awareness till this guy's just like, is that all this is? I'm like, that's really all it is. It's really about becoming aware of yourself and the emotions that come up. Let's say somebody is, is talking with their partner. The more aware they become when they start getting in touch with their feelings, they, they quickly begin to realize that, oh, I, I'll give you an example. I had a client the other day who figured out that he shuts off every time his wife starts speaking. He just, when she starts telling a story, he just blanks out. And he realized that it's because she speaks so fast. But then when they had a conversation about it, she speaks so fast because her entire life, men had just been interrupting her. Our dad would not listen when she came to tell him stories. So she just spoke fast. And for him, a trigger was anytime women spoke fast, he stopped listening to them. But women spoke fast because men kept like, whatever, what you're saying is not, it's not, trying to it's get not it important. In. So the minute he realized that and she realized that, yeah. So they're like, so fast, because you're going to interrupt me. I want to make my point. But it becomes a habit. So it was very healing because both of them could start. He could work on listening and she could work on seeing like, oh, he's actually present, phone down, listening asking questions and I can slow down and I can communicate. That doesn't happen unless you're aware. Sometimes another exercise I have them do is before bed, I'm like, just spend 10 minutes, right? She gets to speak and just what happened in her day for 10 minutes and you get to speak for 10 minutes and you're all done. That's a little bit more structured, not for everybody, but some couples Mm -hmm. that are very busy really thrive on those sort of exercises. Yeah, I find it's like listening is so important, you know, because even when you're a boss, you know, like you get people that they just do top down, 
Like if you've been in kind of this, so you're in this leadership role and you're used to this doing top down, people are supposed to listen to you. And so you get in that role and you don't, you don't really listen because you don't, you don't, you don't think that anybody else's opinion means anything because you're the expert or whatever. So you got to start to respect. This is where I think some people don't, they don't respect the people. They might not respect their kids. They don't respect their neighbors. They don't respect their wife. They don't respect, they like only respect what's coming out of their mouth. So I think you have to start to understand like, like don't, you can't just believe in what only things that you say, you have to have to consider other people's opinions. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. It's like a conscious leadership. It's, it's, um, let's say in our company, we have a few employees, we have like just over 20 people that work with us. And one of the things I have started trying to do more is as we've hired people, I've seen the people that come from that sort of culture you've talked about, where they've only been used to being told things. And then they come into the company and we have a meeting and I'm asking well, how do you feel about that? And they're like, what do you mean by, like, what do you mean by feel? How do I feel about it? You just told me to do something. I'm like, yeah, but I want to know, like, how do you feel about it? Like, do you feel excited about it? Do you feel uncertain? Do you have any reservations? And they're like, what? Okay, well, I feel that it's good, but I don't think maybe it's in my unique ability. I was like, okay, well, is there a way you would like to do this that you feel would be more efficient? Well, actually, now that you ask, I think it'll be more efficient to do this, 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 this. I'm like, there you go. Yeah. If you just went and yeah, did the work think... without me asking you how you felt, <laughs> then it might not be as efficient, right? So, yeah, I think a lot of times we we grew up in school, and there's only a couple of kids raising their hand, and everybody's scared to raise their hand. Everybody's scared to kind of get the fear of being criticized, the fear of being bullied, because if you say something, then you're open. And the thing about being a creative, the thing is we have to be a certain level of fearlessness to put something out and know that a lot of people aren't going to like it. It's probably going to be different than what's popular. And you have to bucket against that when you're a creative that you put out something that maybe didn't exist, can't compare it. Somebody's going to say it's not as good as X, it's not as good as Y, and you have to kind of live with it. And a lot of people don't like that. It's not comfortable. You know, but at a certain point, if you just never speak your mind, that, that discomfort builds up over time and you hit the wall. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I don't know what it is like to be a creative on that level, because I think it, it sounds like as an artist, you'll have to tap into something deep within you. And then you make something out of, out of the ether, out of your own unique experiences, right? I work in a more structured way, creating mm -hmm. systems. So I know the system works because it's been proven and I can get data. I think you all just have to throw it out there and go like, I'm trying to create art, not some templated pop culture, yeah. you know, like you want to do some true artists anyway. Um, so I can, I can see how that would feel uh, incredibly risky. Yeah, it, yeah. even when we deal with other artists, we run into people's fear. Like you, you'd be very surprised. Yeah. There's really good artists. They, they, you think they're totally together and they're, they go on stage and they have this like stance and they seem totally assertive. 
but when you get to them with a producer or a recording engineer, then they're like, I don't know if I should show you this, but this is kind of what I, you know, and then you're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want to see the thing that you don't <laughs> want to show anybody. You know, as a producer, we want to see the thing that uh, you're scared of, because usually that's where gold is. Like where they can clone somebody else or do something they already done. Damn, that's every, that's, that's obvious. I want to go for the thing that is, is that they're scared of, because usually that's where, where the real art is. And I think, you know, when you get into like what I talked to therapists, they, they seem to have found that some, there's some parallels in that, even though I'm talking about art, like the things that people kind of are scared of talking about or presenting is part of the problem that if they don't, you know, address it, they, if you uncover that, that's where things start to happen, that you start moving forward. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to hear that a lot of these individuals who project um, a certain type of character still have that vulnerability when, when the time comes to just open up about it, that they're, it sounds like they're very much, they're very much human. I think yeah. not enough people think about the creative <laughs> process of artists because so many people are busy being fans that you just don't think you're like this person is on them like but before they could stand on that stage in that stadium they had to probably overcome a lot of very deep insecurities to to put that out into the world yeah and, and they, you can run into the issues where you know there's a lot of you know addictions with the creative people you know when we in that's kind of why as a musician i kind of got into this space where i talk to people like yourself because a lot of artists you know they they suffer from alcoholism drug abuse sex addiction all kinds of issues because of the pain of of putting yourself out there right because they put themselves out there to such a degree they sometimes need something to kind of comfort themselves for the pain they incur from the day of the, just doing business of actually being that artist. And that's why you see some of them go away kind of young because they kind of put themselves and that's where a lot of us have tried to lead healthier lives by addressing the things that put you in the 28 club because you don't take care of those things. Then you end up going away. Hmm. Mm. Is the 28 yeah, club it's what happened what, with, an yeah, age the 28 clubs like Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, uh, Kurt Cobain? There's this thing where artists tend to die just before the 30. That's been a pattern because they don't address oh. a lot of these things, and fame okay. just exacerbates these addictions, right? Exactly. So, if you've got these addictions yeah, and then you yeah. get millions of dollars then it becomes like a super, you, you just have no boundaries and yeah, Magnified. it amplifies it to such a degree that sometimes yeah. if you're young, you don't have the tools and nobody told you anything and you're gone because there's no gate. Yeah. That's very interesting to hear. Yeah. We have a lot of young, I wouldn't say not just artists, but we have a lot of young entrepreneurs that work with us, a lot of guys in tech and online stuff who make a lot of money at a very young age. 
And in today's age, in this day and age, you know, the, the young entrepreneur and the young creative because of social media are so, they are, um, they're celebrated. But I think we all know that they're not that many, it's not normal to achieve a high level of, of fame and notoriety at a young age. Um, but, but our culture celebrates it so much. But at that age, you don't have the maturity. You don't, you don't really understand how to process trauma. That actually comes, most people don't like to hear this. This comes later in life when we start looking at life. We're like, oh man, I'm fucked up. I got, I got work to do. <laughs> but when you're young, um, you do all kinds of things. You don't listen to anyone. And then we had a lot of guys, 26, 27, 28. God, those are the most stubborn. Like they listen, but they really believe they're invincible. But they also yeah. have so much pain that read the pain itself is raw. It hasn't, it, they haven't experienced enough with the pain. And sometimes they don't make it. Um, I don't see it in the art world, but more in the entrepreneurial world. And that's why you mm -hmm. see a lot of these entrepreneurs too getting busted for stuff. I think they were like most of the people under Forbes, young people under 30, under Forbes 400 or whatever it is, um, 30 under 30, Forbes 30 under 30. Almost all of them have been arrested for some kind of fraud or whatever from Elizabeth Holmes, yeah. the Theranos yeah. stuff, um, because they can't handle it. So they have to do something fraudulent. And most of them have some addictive behavior as well. They're using to manage uh, um, those issues. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people have to, you know, like they think like, you know, I want a million dollars, but like, like, what do you really want? Do you want? to be able to live like have freedom or to be able to do this or do that like, like get to the point like is it the money or is it the certain things that you think the money are going to bring you because if you think you know the money just exacerbates everything and so if you haven't solved like i want respect well you got to earn respect so if you're going to buy respect it's probably not going to be that solid <laughs> so, so so how do you how do you do something where you're going to be uh at peace because people think well that is that really going to give you peace you know and it's like like if you're doing the, this this sex addiction you're trying to feel mm. that feeling but is that really bringing you joy after repeating it over and over mm -hmm. eventually that's not really bringing you joy is it Absolutely. One of the exercises we have our clients do when they come in is, you know, typically in traditional recovery, you are looking to the, I'll put it like this, we're called porn reboots, not porn recovery. And the reason why is traditional recovery is about recovering that which you lost to your addictive behavior. But the interesting thing is, if you're in your 30s, your 40s, or your 50s, you don't know what you lost when you were 25 years old acting the fool. You don't know what, you just lost stuff. So your only frame of reference is what your sponsor or therapist tells you you should do with your life. They're like, well, this is what a good person who goes through the 12 steps does, which can be very destructive to you if you are a creative person. There are a lot of creatives who will go through these programs and they lose their creativity because the program puts you in a box and says, well, the only way for you to stay off this behavior is to stop doing these things which make you extraordinary and be happy with this. But that's not the only way. Yeah. The truth is you have to define what the end of your behavior is for yourself. 
what is it? So I tell guys and they're like, no, like, I want to be like you. It's like, you don't know anything about me. I'm a broken human being to have my own issues. It's like, you have to define what is going to make you happy. What is your sexual life going to look like? What's your financial life going to look like? What is intimacy looking like for you? Not what you read in a book. What do you want? What's going to make you happy? And as we work together over this next year and a half to two years, we will meet up several times and we will go through that definition again and again, because that's the only way when your self-image changes to what you want, that's the only way, only chance you have at happiness, not someone else's definition of it. Yeah, because like we had a producer and it kind of like a parallel kind of situation happens is you get a kid, got a demo and they come to the producer and they want they want to sound like something I already did. And my whole thing is I listen to the demo and that's that person's yeah. unique voice, right? And some producers will radically change the demo to be something more like them or more like something they already did. My whole point is I think I want to look at who, what that demo is mm. and say, I want to turn that into the best version of that unique piece of work, which means I'm not going to radically change it. I'm just going to make it sound better. I'm going to make the voice sound better, the drums sound better, everything sound better, but it's still going to be that person's voice instead of turning them into whatever's in the top 10, because that's really what they're showing me. They're showing me that that's who they are. So am I going to change exactly. them to turn them into somebody else I produced or me or something I produced, or am I going to make it the best version of themselves? So I think people have to kind of define like the best version of themselves of where they want to be, not to be a clone of you or somebody else they see in the public. It's like, take the things about you that make you you. Everybody has a unique human voice, have their own opinions, their own visions, try to do what's positive and do the best version of yourself. And that is it. I think that's also an the, the essence of living a creative artistic life. It's, it's just finding out the things that make you unique, how you can be the best version of that. I think capitalism, which I'm cool with and, but the, the commercialization of everything forces us to move artists and and art and movies into templates because that's what brings out the most money but then we're doing the same thing and things like personal development and addiction recovery as human beings we're like let's create a template let's put this human being in the template let's squeeze them out the other side and they become you see all these people who come out of a 12-step group and they're gray it's it's there's no color they're like no 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 i can't do this i can't do this Right, is day day in day out. Once an addict, always an addict. I'm like, really? That's how you want to live this one life? Once an addict, always an addict. Is that the limit? The limit you want to put on yourself? But some people think that's happiness. They're like, yeah, dude, that's that's happiness. And uh, if you want to take the risk, take the risk. And many years ago, I decided. I was like, yeah, I'll take the risk to find another way. But there's no way I'm going to live as an addict with that definition hanging over my head because I will lose the, the fullness of, of the human experience, which I knew instinctively was much more than just a label somebody gives you, right? So I think anybody who's listening when you're young, um, sure, you should, you should work on your trauma. You should work on developing coping strategies, but you also, also should make sure that you're not forced into a box, yeah. right? And it's risky, but the younger you are, the more time you have 
to play around and be creative and develop your own art of living, so to speak. Yeah, I always tell people to kind of be outside the box because like I'm an old school producer. I use like real keyboards and synthesizers and guitars and you know, organic instruments, like yeah. physical <laughs> instruments. And so we yeah. live in a world where the box is like mm. a computer, right? Yeah. So I could get a computer and be in a digital workstation and I don't have any yeah. real instruments at all. No guitars, no bass, no piano. And you can write an album like that. And it probably it sounds antiseptic. It sounds like perfect. And my whole point to a lot of young artists is go mm. listen to Exile on Main Street. Go, go listen to James Brown. Go listen to like Nat King Cole. What will you hear if you really listen? Micro timing errors, errors in the tape. It's not perfect all the time. There's like errors in the rhythm. There's a thing called a happy accident in old recordings that weren't digital. And it's what makes the music kind of like a painting is that the imperfections make the art. And people with computers have, have lost a understanding mm. that art is from is really beautiful in its imperfections. It's not perfect. And sometimes you can't actually like make that. it repeat it. You can play a song, but it's never going to be the same as when you first wrote it. And you have to, but if you run it in a computer, it will. If you run a sample, it will. But then what do you lose from being organic or being human where you might make a micro timing error well there's nothing wrong with that that's actually why people go see a band live because of those micro timing changes and the way they might go and do it it's different but if you're running out the box it's the same every night well what, what what's what i could just stay home and listen to that yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I think that's a shame. I think, I think it's a shame that, uh, that human beings are just getting used to that. I like the way to use the antiseptic in our world is that almost clinical perfection, which is just not what makes our experience rich. Our experiences are rich because of the uniqueness and the mistakes and the, the breaks and everything. So anything that goes for perfection, especially with computers and AI and all of this, even if you look at AI art and stuff like that, something's off. There's yeah. always something that's off in your subconscious sees. It's beautiful, but it's too perfect. Why is it I don't like it, even though it looks amazing? That's because it's not created yeah. by it's, a human being. It's, it's a CPU, a, it's a CPU vision of art when art is a human thing, right? So the CPU is gonna, mm. it's gonna make it and it might look really good, mm. but it's kind of like, you know, the Xerox. What happens with a Xerox? Every time you do it, it gets faded. It's not, you know, it's not exactly what the original is. And it might look like it, but it starts to lose something. And it's that's my yeah. opinion, is it start to lose that funk. Like funk can't be AI. You're not gonna get a James Brown or a Bootsy Collins doing funk. Yep. You know, you know, in an AI, it's never gonna be what a real funk player could do or a jazz player could do, even a classical musician could do, or a punk rocker could do, because it's the attitude. Yeah. And a computer doesn't have attitude, it has a random behavior where maybe seems like it's attitude, but it's not. And so that's where people got to understand that that stuff it's not. Is, it's a tool and you could use it to a certain degree, but don't replace people with it. You know, that, that's my whole thing is people are important. And in, in, in the cloning stuff and being in a box, 
you know, try to get out of the box because it's easy to put yourself in a box because it seems you'll get a lot of people saying, oh, that looks great. But is, is it really you? You know, then you start to, yeah, I think it, it's an analogy. You can start to think about like, yeah, it, it's some fear to do something that yeah. might not be perfect. There's fear involved, but you got to, you got to take the risk. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy how so, this conversation went to that. We were talking about porn addiction, but. <laughs> well, I it's think it's important. <laughs> it, I, I think what will we'll bring people to go to elevated recovery is, is the feeling that they were in the box of doing the same thing every day. And like you say, are they going to yep. be an addict for the rest of their life? Absolutely. Or are they going to choose to, to, to deal with that next step, which is, oh, I got to talk to a guy about something I don't want to talk about where there's a lot of fear. There's gonna be a point where you're actually gonna click on that and you're gonna maybe read about it. And then when you go into it, eventually you're gonna to talk to somebody and there's gonna be fear about that first conversation, but that's outside the box. And you know, and then to progress, you gotta get outside the box. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the freedom of knowing that um, even when you seek help, one thing that, that holds a lot of people back is they're afraid of the clinical approach. They think like, I'm going to speak to somebody who's going to be very clinical. Like they're going to hear me talk about my pain and they'll be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, when was the last time you actually felt that way? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they're like, listen, I'm talking to you about my pain and my trauma. I want a human experience. So we stepped away from all the clinical stuff. We stepped away from people coming in and speaking to somebody who acts as if, oh, like, here we go, you know, another client. I'm waiting for the time on the clock to be over, so I'll see the next client. We don't believe in that. For us, it's everybody who comes in is a new human being with a similar problem, but their history, their arousal template, everything about this person is new and exciting and fresh. And so all the reboot strategists and the therapists that work with us, for them, it's exciting to have somebody come in because the skill set and what they are judged by is their ability to place this person in the right program within Elevated Recovery that's going to help them. And you can't guess it. You can't put somebody in there like this. It's a human being. You might need an hour. Some people, you might need two hours to sit down with them. You can't look at a clock. If it takes a human being two hours, who's never spoken to a therapist in their life. And they're like, man, I heard you on a podcast and I just put my trust out there. And this is the small window I have. Well, we have to sit there with you. There's no charge for it. We just got to sit there and listen till you're ready. And sometimes you're not even ready. Sometimes people show up and all they wanted to do was just talk about the problem. And that's okay. We'll be like, see you in a couple of years. Now that you've opened up, go out into the world like with this new vulnerability and then come back when you're ready to actually take action. And that's very freeing for a lot of people. That's the difference between porn reboot and elevated recovery and your traditional clinical approaches, which have their own place as well. Yeah. Well, I think I'm really uh, thankful that we had the conversation today. I, that's why I do the podcast. Cause I like to bring, um, you know, people to my listeners that have uh, different approaches that I find it to be very creative in the different approaches that people have and the types of livelihoods they have and the things that they talk about 
uh, I like to bring to my audience because I think sometimes they don't hear it. And I try to bring things to people that I don't think they've been aware of. And I think you've, you've helped me in that mission today. So I want people to go to uh, www.elevatedrecovery.org and click on that. That will be clickable on the published versions of the podcast. It will be published later today or and or, and or tomorrow. Uh, we were live on Facebook and YouTube and Twitch. We'll be on almost all the major plat podcast platforms shortly um, thereafter. And a thank you again for being on the podcast. Now, thank you for having me on. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing, uh, bringing different people on to share them. I was actually curious before I came on. I was like, why? But I'm always open. I'm just like, let's just go on and see and see what happens. And I'm very thankful that I came on. And I hope that I was able to uh, serve some of your listeners. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Remember to stay on for a little bit. Uh, but we'll be, we're going off the air right now. But thank you again for being on. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it.